We've just finished last Sunday the first book of Samuel and uh, it's taken us how long? A year or something like that to, to, to look at the first book of Samuel and yet so much amazing things have come out in the story more illumination for me I'm sure for Lamb as he's been preparing and I trust for you too you know the book of first Samuel begins with Israel in a corrupt state there is Eli and his sons the priests the leaders the religious leaders in compromise the nation in compromise and uh, as the book of Judges ended you know, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And that's largely the condition we are facing in the world right now. You know, authority is despised. People are taught in their schooling, in their education, to think for themselves, to make their own decisions, to be independent and, and uh, you know, you've got your own rights. And basically, people are being taught to do what is right in their own eyes. No authority over them. And this has spread itself powerfully and affected all of us in in some ways. And we know that's going to happen because the Bible tells us that towards the time before Jesus returns, there will be massive rebellion on earth. It talks about a man of rebellion who will rise up and, and release rebellion in people's thinking and their behavior Um, when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ he is the most beautiful example of submission there is in the whole Bible submission to God in authority and to human authorities also on earth because he believed God ultimately was in all authority and Just prior to getting into the first book of Samuel, we had that lovely story about Ruth and Boaz, which starts with Eli Melech. Isn't it interesting? Eli Melech, the name of the man, Eli is El for God, and Melech is king, God is king. Eli Melech, his name was God is king, but he rebelled. (laughs) You know, it's it's like a, a paradox. There's a famine in Israel and he chooses in his own eyes, doing what's right in his own eyes, he goes down to Moab. The consequences of his actions are that he dies, his two sons die, his wife is left mourning. Certainly it is not a good state to be in. While another man, contrasted in the book of Ruth, Boaz, has remained in the land of Israel through the famine, he has been a kind and gracious man even though he has uh, an agricultural uh, farm of some significance but during the famine of course that would have been affected but he has remained there and his character is beautifully contrasted with that of Eli Melech because Boaz is a submitted man in the process of redeeming Ruth he is very conscious of doing the right thing before God He is not in rebellion. He is submitted to God's authority. And in the end, he is rewarded with this beautiful woman who has surrendered herself to the God of Israel to be his wife. And of course, they bear a son who becomes the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This evening we're going to look for the first time at the next book of the scriptures, the second book of Samuel. It starts with a scene of lamentation. It starts with a scene of lamentation, which is not much different in a sense to the first book of Samuel which starts with a scene of lamentation in the life of Hannah, who has been denied children, or up until this point anyway. Second Samuel starts with this scene. God has raised up earthly kings in the first book of Samuel for the people of Israel who wanted to be like the nations around them. That's always a big challenge for us as people who love God. The great temptation is to be like the world around us. The story of Saul and David again shows us the contrast in in the first book of Samuel between two men, like the book of Ruth, Eli, Melech and Boaz. Here in 1 Samuel we have the contrast between Saul and David. Samuel had taught the people to return to their Lord. And how? what is the main teaching, do you think, that Samuel brings to the people concerning returning to the Lord? What would you say Samuel's main teaching is? And who is his best pupil? Who takes hold of his teaching in the fullest sense? And what did David take hold of that Samuel taught? What did Samuel's mother do to return to the Lord? She cried out in her anguish and desperation to God. And that truth about God is the lesson that Samuel brings back to the people, to return them to God. Remember he says in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. So what do you think his main message is to the people? You need to be people of prayer. You need to be in prayer. You're going to be facing troubles and trials and difficulties and problems. There are Philistines, there are enemies, your own corruption. You need to pray. You need to humble yourself and pray. And who is the person who takes hold of this message more than any other David, have a look at the book of Psalms. You'll see what David took hold of Samuel. He learned to pray. And we have the book of Psalms as a result of Samuel's teaching. Remember, I read tonight from Psalm 99. Psalm 99 records this. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. This is what Samuel taught. He taught the people to return to their Lord, to to take hold of their God. He was the living God. He spoke, remember, as a young child, he heard God speak. He's a God to be communicated with, and he will communicate with his people when they take hold of him in prayer. Now, what did Saul do as a result of Samuel's teaching? Have a look at what he does. He doesn't listen. He doesn't take hold of it. He goes and fights battles without asking God. He does all sorts of things. He ends up in absolute rebellion against God by fighting the one person who is praying 
And let me tell you, friends, that will always be the case. You will always find people who are not praying against people who are praying. Always. Because if you don't pray, you can't connect to God and you'll operate in the flesh. And the flesh will war against the spirit every time. And that's what happens in the book of 1 Samuel. You have a king called Saul who's operating in the flesh, warring against a young man who comes against Goliath and says, oh, you know, you come against me with a spear and all the rest, but I come against you in the name of the Lord, Jehovah Sabaoth. What's David saying? I have prayed to the God of heaven and you are going to come down. Not because I defeat you, but because he's going to defeat you. The Lord of hosts, the one who fights for his people, is the one David took hold of before Goliath. The living and true God who saves his people when they cry out to him. And that's, that's all through the Bible. What is the history of Israel there in Egypt? God saved them when? They cried out to him in their troubles. As the first book of Samuel unfolds, we find David increasingly successful and victorious. Why? Because he has listened to Samuel, taken hold of the teaching Samuel has brought, put it into practice, and he has success. We also find Saul increasingly failing to submit to God. And finally we see Saul consulting a witch. You know, a witch. Uh, The very people God said you should put them to death. There's to be no connection with other spiritual forces, because they are in the world. The devil and his fallen angels have come upon the earth. And God does not want his people connected with them. Saul goes to consult a person under an evil spirit. And what is the outcome? He joins forces with the powers of darkness that fight against God. The end result of his rebellion is total defeat in battle against the Philistines. Even his son, Jonathan who is a dear, godly man, is killed. That's a reminder to us that the sins of the father impact the children. Jonathan is killed. He'd been such a blessing to David. And God's people are crushed by their enemies. It says in 2 Samuel there in the first few verses as the uh, Amalekite comes back and reports to David, men fled from the battle, fell and died. Well, friends, how are we going in our battles? Are we fleeing from the battle? Are we falling and are we dying? That's not a good sign. But it was certainly the history in the people of Israel. Do you remember when Joshua and the people went into the promised land? They had amazing success around Jericho, didn't they? They did exactly what God told them to do. But one of them, a man by the name of Achan, spotted some things that looked rather attractive, took them into his possession 
And then Israel went to fight a much easier target, Ai, and were defeated and 36 of them got killed. 36 who hadn't taken anything from Jericho. And God tells Joshua, Israel has sinned. That's why they're defeated. There is defeat in the camp of Israel. Well, we'll see similar things happen in the New Testament in the passage we read tonight. But let's just reflect now on 2 Samuel chapter 1. Here is this report after the death of Saul when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. Now, do you remember what David had done? Do you remember how he had lied, gone over to the Philistines, made a friend of one of their kings, lying to him about the fact that he was killing some of Israel's enemies when telling him he was killing Israel's uh, uh, people? And then his family were taken captive by the Amalekites and his own men were going to kill him. What did David do? He was defeated. He had fallen in this battle. Do you remember what David did? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He did what Samuel had told him to do. You might be defeated. You might be overcome. You might find yourself in a situation where you you have failed. But God does not fail. And if you return to him, what happened when David strengthened himself in God's character? A God of forgiveness, a God of steadfast love and mercy, a God who restores those who cry out to him in their distress as we find later on in Psalm 51 when he sins even more grievously. He cries out to this saving God. What does he do? God comes and saves him. And he gives David success over the Amalekites. David poured his heart out to God there at Ziklag. And he found God strengthening him to go into battle against the Amalekites and win the battle. And then coming back from this victory after he himself had sinned, had repented, had sought God's help and got the victory, he comes back and he hears the report that Saul has gone into battle and got completely annihilated. What do you think he's thinking? Oh my goodness, Saul, what are you doing? If only you had turned to God as I did at Ziklag. He would have saved you. When David had returned from striking the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid him homage. This man clearly is wanting David's favour. He's paying homage to David. He knows who David is. As we'll see in the story, he knows exactly who David is. He's trying to seek David's favour by telling him a lie that he killed Saul, you know, David's enemy, when we know Saul died on his own sword. This man pays homage to David. And David says to him, where have you come from? And David has come from a victory. How's he feeling? 
He's come from a victory. He's got his whole family back. You know, God has restored. I think Lamb talked about that, didn't he? God is a God of restoration. Even when we've made terrible mistakes, he can restore the whole lot when we turn back to him. How's David feeling after this wonderful restoration? Then he sees this man in in drags and torn. Where have you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David says to him, how did it go? He's just had victory himself. How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. What? And David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? It's almost hard to believe. The young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be at Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear. Behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close on him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. Complete lies. And called to me and I, and I answered, here I am. He said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the arm, arm that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Thinking he's going to get great approval from David. Well, he is completely mistaken, isn't he? Why is he mistaken? You know, if you're a person of prayer, if you really pray like David prayed, there is one thing you will be seeking, and it's the honour of the one to whom you pray. That is the only thing you will genuinely seek if you genuinely pray to the God of heaven and earth. You will be wanting the honour of his name. And here you have a report in front of you that his people have been totally defeated. What is David going to think now? Well, we know exactly. The next verse tells us, David took hold of his clothes and he tore them in two. And so he, all his men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword, because they had been defeated by evil in this world. Now, friends, are you praying How is the church going today? Are we winning? Why are we not winning? David would ask us this question. Why are you not winning? Have you taken hold of Samuel's lesson? David is not so much thinking about Saul who tried to kill him. He is thinking about God's honour being utterly 
ashamed in this defeat of God's people in the hands of the Philistines. And his dear friend Jonathan, whom he loved deeply, has been killed as a result. I remember when I came to this church, I used to go to families and visit them. And I would hear of the decimation in their spiritual lives and the lives of their children. I remember one particular family who had a son who was demonically possessed with drugs and he was in the psych, psych ward of Monash Medical Centre a number of times. I remember coming home and praying to God and weeping in that vestry over the defeat of the church. Why? Because we have sinned against God and we're not dealing with our sin. I'm not against the people. How could this happen, Lord? How could the enemy come in in such a way that he has defiled your house? There is only one way he has done this. The people have not taken hold of Samuel's lesson. And what is his lesson, friends? What is Samuel's lesson? Pray! Look at the church. Look at the prayer meetings of the church today. Have a look. We should all be there. I said that last Sunday morning. I'd like to see 100 people on Zoom on 6 a.m., That'll be, that'll be a bit different. We're in desperate need, friends. Desperate. I wonder how we realise how desperate we really are. We are in a desperate state. Truth is about to be removed from our land. And it will get a lot worse if truth is removed. We're in a desperate state. And David responded appropriately. He tore his clothes and mourned and wept and fasted because of this desperate situation. David said to the young men who told him, Where do you come from? He answered, I'm the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now we know, of course, he actually didn't do it, but he's told David he did. Then David called one of the young men and said, execute him. He struck him down so that he died. Why did this man die? Because he lied. Do you know telling lies is extremely dangerous? We look at a story in a moment of a New Testament passage where two people, a husband and a wife, tell a lie. What happens to them? And what is the battle we are facing tomorrow in the Liberal Party room? It's a battle for truth. 
And if truth is removed, you and I will be lying because we won't even know the truth. And if you don't know the truth, you tell lies. And you might think you're telling the truth when you're telling a lie. And lies are serious in God's sight. When you judge someone else and you don't know the whole story and you make comments and statements about them that aren't absolutely true, they are extremely serious in God's sight. And yet David had lied, remember? David had lied. And then he saw what happened as a result. And what did he do then? He turned back to God. He turned back to the God of mercy and forgiveness. The God of steadfast love. The God who restores us from a state of untruth and lies. He repented of his condition and he won victory over the Amalekites. Well, in the New Testament, we have the story read to us tonight of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it and lay the apostles' feet All of that, in one sense, was fine. But he told a lie about how much the property was sold for. He deceived the leaders of the church. And he died. And after an interval of three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened to her husband. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. You see, tell me the truth. And she lied. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry it immediately. She fell down at his feet, breathed her last and died. When the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her, and great fear came upon the whole church. Was it a good fear? Indeed it was a good fear. A fear of the Lord, a fear of of grieving God by not speaking truth. And you know, you can't actually speak truth without the spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit. There is no truth apart from holiness of life. When we're called to be God's people, we are called into a battle. We are in in a war in this world. And it's a war between truth and, and deception. Truth and lies. What did Satan say to Eve in the garden? False things about God and about herself. He told her lies and she believed them. The battle is with the world, the flesh and the devil. 
Like AI, when Achan was tempted to take earthly treasure into his tent, so Ananias and Sapphira attempted to take earthly treasure into their hearts. You cannot love God and money. It's impossible. You cannot love God and money. And money is a great area where lies are easily multiplied. You know, lies about tax return, what, what, you know, all sorts of things. All to do with the love of money that produce this sort of response. And it's extremely serious in the eyes of God. In the battle with the forces of darkness in this world, the only place where we can surely stand in victory is in lives of holiness, separation unto God. But of course, we're all sinners. David was a sinner. But remember how he was restored by coming, humbling himself before God, acknowledging his true condition, acknowledging that he had sinned, and strengthening himself in the God of Samuel, the God that Samuel taught him about. Today, I think we should be in lamentation. For the church has fled largely from the battle, has fallen, and in many places is dead. But God is the God of Samuel. He's the God of David. He's the God who can turn it all around. He's the God who can restore, just like Lamb preached a couple of weeks ago, or last week, I can't remember which Sunday it was. He can restore the whole lot if we will humble ourselves, if we will be like Hannah was at the beginning of 1 Samuel, or like David is here at the beginning of 2 Samuel. God is able to restore those who truly turn back to him and acknowledge the truth about who he is. Remember Jehoshaphat? Remember he nearly lost his life by going into battle with Ahab, by joining with uh, uh, one who was compromised? But he cried out to God in the midst of the battle and God saved him and rescued him, brought him back to uh, Jerusalem where a seer challenged him and said, what are you doing making friends of God's enemies? And then what happened? Three great armies came to destroy Jehoshaphat. It was a test. Where are you putting your confidence, Jehoshaphat? Who is going to win your battle? Tomorrow in the Liberal Party room, tomorrow as Lamb goes to talk with the... Who is going to win the battle? Not we are going to win the battle. God is able to win the battle. If we will turn back to him, if we will acknowledge him for who he is, if we will be true to him, by humbling ourselves, 
and acknowledging like Daniel did in the study we had on Wednesday, we've all sinned. But our God is a God of salvation, a God who rescues, a God who saves, and those who truly turn back to him, as Jehoshaphat did in Second Chronicles 20, as he cried out, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And what did God say to him then? The battle's not yours, it's mine. Go out. You won't even need to fight. And they sang, and God caused confusion to the enemies. And Jehoshaphat, out of that story, came to know the God of David in 1 Samuel, the God who fights for his people, who cry out to him in truth. Let's pray.